Years ago, I was uh, counseling a couple who'd come to my office, and uh, they wanted to uh, try to figure out what was going on in their marriage and wanted some wisdom or assistance from their pastor. And uh, at one point, the husband uh, told me one of the problems in their marriage. And he said, well, I want a sea-do, one of these personal watercraft, you know. He said, I want a sea-do, but I'm not going to get it. Because if I get a sea-do, I'm, I'm going to want to spend a lot of time on it, out on the lake. And if I spend a lot of time out on the lake, well, then the sea-do will sort of indicate that it, I guess I love it more than I love my wife. And I don't want her upset at me. And I did, really didn't know exactly what to say to a request for a sea-do. Um, that wasn't in any of my seminary training. And I turned to the wife. I said, well, what, what are your thoughts about this? And that's always the best kind of counseling. When you don't know what to say, what do you think? You know, and just continue to ask questions. And the wife said, well, if, if he does buy it, he better spend a lot of time on it. It'd be foolish to buy something that expensive and not spend time on it. And I thought, okay, well, that, that's interesting. And I don't know if we got very far with the whole sea-do issue, but uh, what the wife actually said was uh, pretty instructive. And I think she had picked up on something that, uh, whether she meant to or not, is an eternal principle, and it's this. Whatever you invest in, your heart follows. Whatever you put your money into or your time into or your effort into, if you make a decision, even if your heart doesn't really want to do something, but you start investing in whatever that is, and the moment that you begin investing in whatever that is, your heart will soon follow. Your heart will come into line. A lot of people think that it's the opposite way, that you just sort of sit around and you wait till you get fired up. You wait till you get excited about doing something. And then, and then you start spending your money. And then you start spending your time and your energy and your effort. But really, I think it's the opposite. Go ahead, even if you're not very excited about it emotionally, begin to invest in the things that you know are important, and your heart will follow thereafter. What I'm talking about today is having a certain type of mindset, having a, a, a way to see the world a way to believe, a way to act, a way to think, a way to speak. And it begins in your mind. It's having a certain type of mindset. Now, you can have a worldly mindset, and a lot of, a lot of us think that, well, Christians don't have worldly mindsets, but really, we can. And, th and by worldly mindset, I'm not talking about something that's necessarily uh, a mind that's set on sin, although that can obviously, that's obviously worldly. But a worldly mindset could even be something that you have to give attention to every so often. For example, if your ever-waking thought is about your possessions, that's a worldly mindset. Or about your bills, or about your health, or about your job. These are all worldly mindsets. Now, you do have to think about your health and your bills and your possessions and your job from time to time. But I'm talking about what it, what it is that takes up the majority of time in your mind. Where does your mind tend to dwell? Where does it float to or drift off to? C.S. Lewis said, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. 
And I think that's very true, that we can get so focused on the, the details of life, whether they're sinful or whether they're necessary, we can get so focused on those details that we begin to develop a mindset that's really worldly. Now, other Christians, they have a very heavenly mindset. And a heavenly mindset, I, you know, when I think about people that think of heaven all the time, I think of Southern Gospel quartets. They've got a lot of songs about heaven. You know, uh, First Day in Heaven. Uh, that's an old one. That's a good one. Uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Uh, there's a song called Heaven Bound. And so if you want to hear some songs about heaven and the hereafter, and where Mama is and all of that, you know, think about uh, Southern Gospel uh, type of music. Uh, there's, a, there's a focus there. Uh, but there's even a danger to having a heavenly mindset. And the danger is this, that you put your life on spiritual cruise control. You just sort of coast through this life. And you don't try to serve God actively. You're just hanging on, waiting until the Lord calls me home. And instead of taking every moment that God has given you on this earth to serve Him. I think there's another kind of mindset that I would encourage us to consider. And it's a mindset that, for lack of a better term, I call a heaven-on-earth mindset. A heaven-on-earth mindset. Where do we get this idea of a heaven-on-earth? Well, we hear it in the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was telling us to pray that, God, whatever you do in heaven, let that also be done here on earth. Let's bring heaven down to earth. Go for, fast forward in the book of Revelation. What happens? New Jerusalem comes to earth to dwell. And that's our eternity. And so here in this life, in this world, is it possible for us to have a mindset that yes, it's focused on heaven, but how heaven can impact our lives today here on earth. A heaven on earth type of mindset. For eternity impacts the present. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds are all flavored with eternity. They're flavored with heaven, but they're carried out in a very intentional way here on earth. Take your Bible and turn to Second Peter chapter 3. We've been journeying through uh, 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're looking at the last few verses of this uh, great book, and verses 11 through 18. And here's what we read. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things 
are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. There are three essential ideas in this passage. They are to be holy, to be alert, and to be timeless. In your life, we ought to be holy, we ought to be alert, and we ought to be timeless. Holiness is described in verse 11. Again, this reads, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? All these things that he's talking about, he's talking about all the things that God is going to destroy. He's going to destroy this world with fire. And Peter re-describes that here in these verses. But all the worldly things of this life, we have to understand why we don't want to place value in them, because there's no eternal value in the worldly things. I remember a friend of mine uh, who was a youth minister years ago was talking to a young man who was just so proud of his brand new car and uh, so excited to be able to drive it around, brand new. And he said, isn't my car just the greatest thing ever? And my friend, who sometimes has a, the, the, the mercy or the tenderness of a bull in a china shop, said, it's all going to burn someday. It's all going to burn. And he was right. It is going to burn. Everything that you have, all your possessions, you're not going to take them with you. This whole world will burn there's no earthly or there's no eternal value in worldly things. It's going to be destroyed. But your life will continue. And so how do we live our lives? In the here and now, in verse 11, we're, we were told to live our lives with holiness, holy conduct, and godliness. What does holiness mean? It means we behave differently. The word holy means that, we're, that it's somehow different. It's other. It's unique. There's nothing like it. And so we're to behave different. Why should we behave different? Well, because we are different. Scripture describes us as strangers. It calls us aliens. It calls us foreigners. We are transients. We're just here for a time. We are pilgrims on a journey somewhere beyond this world. Why should we behave differently? Because we are different. The goal is not to embrace this world, but rather to transform this world. And so we, if we are here for a time, then God has placed us here for a purpose as well. And our idea that needs to be at the forefront of our mind must be to transform the world in which we are. And you might say, well, I'm just one person. I can't transform the whole world. No, but you can transform your world your sphere of influence, your family, your friends. You can, you can be a transforming factor in what God does in the lives of other people. He can use you in mighty ways. And so we are to be different. That's what the word holy means. But different in what way? Is it because we're all vegetarians? Is it because uh, we, we look a certain way, we dress a certain way? No, not, it's none of that. We're different in the uh, lifestyle 
of godliness. We are to have holy conduct and godliness. What's godliness means? It means whatever God acts like, that's what we should act like. If God is a certain way, if His character is a certain way, we should seek to emulate that character. Randy Alcorn wrote a book that I think many of you have read called Heaven. And in that book he writes, If my wedding date is on the calendar and I'm thinking of the person I'm going to marry, I shouldn't be an easy target for seduction. Likewise, when I've meditated on heaven, sin is not terribly appealing. It's when my mind drifts from heaven that sin seems attractive. Heaven should affect our abilities and our ambitions, our recreation and our friendships, and the way we spend our money and our time. And so we are called to be holy in verse 11. Verses 12 through 13, we're also called to be alert. Verse 12 says, Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. We're to look for what Peter calls the day of God. What, what's the day of God? Doesn't every day belong to God? Yeah, every day belongs to God. But there's a coming day of God elsewhere. Scripture talks about repeatedly the day of the Lord. And let me tell you what the day of God is. The day of God will occur when Christ returns and He establishes His rule over all the nations and He gives the kingdoms of the world to the Father. I want you to listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20, excuse me, 23 through 26 read. It's, and it's talking about in the context of our resurrection. The resurrection that's coming for us in the future that's based on Christ's resurrection, which has already occurred. It says, But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That describes the day of God. Very succinctly, it describes what's going to happen. Jesus Christ has already been resurrected. At His return... We will be resurrected, and Jesus will put all of the kingdoms of the world under His feet. He will abolish all authority except that which belongs to Him. And once that Christ is recognized as King over all the kingdoms of the world, it is then that Christ will take all the kingdoms of the world, everything that He has done from the cross on forward, and He will present all of that to the Father. As if to say, this is what I've done for you. And Christ will have restored God's original plan in Eden. The day of God is something that we are to look forward to. But look at what else verse 12 says. 
We're not only looking for the coming of the day of God, but we're hastening it. We're hastening the coming of the day of God. How can we speed up that day? That doesn't seem right. But that's what the word hastening means. Peter says very clearly that we hasten the coming of the day of God. How does this happen? We have a few clues in Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when the disciples asked, When will your coming be? When will you be the king over the nations? When will you establish your kingdom? Part of his reply in verse 14 of Matthew 24 was, were these words. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I'd submit to you that we hasten the kingdom of God when we preach the gospel, when we tell people who need to know the gospel, especially, specifically, when we go to those unreached places and we share the gospel with them. Listen again to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. He's talking about this complicated subject of, of God's eternal plan with Israel and how God has now grafted into the, the tree, the family of God, these new people called Gentiles into one family of God called the church. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That in God's eternal plan, God is waiting patiently for the gospel to reach what Paul says is the fullness of the Gentiles. And it is then that that personal hardening of Israel will be removed and Israel will come back in mass to the Lord. I want you to listen carefully to what Peter said when he preached in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Peter's preaching to Jews. He's sharing the gospel to Jews. And he says this in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Peter says to these Jews, You need to repent and turn to the Lord so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that God may send Jesus. Peter, I think, very clearly was saying to those Jewish people who were hearing the gospel that their repentance could very much hasten the coming of the day of God. And that's exactly what he says in the verse that we just read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. We not only look forward to the coming of the day of God, 
It would be one thing if Peter said, won't it be great when Jesus comes back, when he rolls back the sky and he rides on that white horse and he comes and he takes rule over this world. Won't that be a wonderful day? Peter says, yeah, look forward to that. He also says, hasten it. Be a part of it. Share the gospel. Peter writes that the heavens, in verse 12, will be destroyed by burning. And there's that theme again. But more important than that will be what comes afterwards. He says the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But look at verse 13. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the plan. That's the goal. A new heaven and a new earth. This is what He calls the promise. According to God's promise, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Since when did God make us that promise? It's in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Scripture says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, verse 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Peter says, way back when, God made a promise to bring us a new heaven and a new earth, and He's going to keep that promise. Do you understand God's original plan? God's original plan in Eden was to create a place that was more than just man's home. God, God didn't just put Adam and Eve in the garden. And what I mean by that is it was much more than that. It wasn't just humanity's home there in the garden. It was also God's home. God lived there. And God gave instructions. What did God tell the man and the woman in Genesis chapter 1 multiply and fill the earth the implication is this I want you to take this little piece of land that, that I'm calling Eden and we know it's a small piece of land relatively speaking because there were rivers that, flew, that, that flowed from it there were, there were boundaries and when the man and the woman fell they were cast out of Eden and so Eden was not the entire earth, but it was a portion of the earth. And God said, I want you to multiply and fill the earth. And the implication is, I want you to make over generations and generations and generations all of this earth my Eden. And I'm going to make you my imagers. To be made in the image of God is to be God's royal representatives. To be made in the image of God means that we reign and rule with God on earth. And that's how God made us originally in Genesis chapter 1. He made us to be His imagers. We are God's family. He made us to be His sons, sons of the King. Back in ancient days, and there are many even modern examples of this today, but if you think of the Pharaoh, for example, who were the administrators of Pharaoh's government. Many of them were his own sons, his own family members. That's what God had designed for us.
God was uh, giving us the authority on earth to be His representatives, to speak for the King, to act for the King. We were to be His family. And sin could, cannot stop that. When Adam and Eve fell, it did not stop God's plan. We were still God's imagers, still to be God's royal representatives. But now we had a problem, and the problem has been resolved through Christ. Christ has solved the problem of sin and solved the problem of sin's effects, which is death. And someday, we will be given new bodies, glorified bodies, bodies in which there's no sickness, bodies in which there's no more death, bodies that are immortal. And it is in these incredible, immortal bodies that will be just like Christ's resurrected body that we will reign as God's imagers over the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what Peter's describing in verse 13. This is a place where righteousness will dwell. There will be no sin in the new heaven and new earth. Completely sin-free. What are the problems with sin today and temptation today? The problems are twofold. There are temptations out there in the world, but even more than that, there are temptations and sin reigns in our hearts. Sin affects us in our hearts. In the new heavens and the new earth, both of those will be eliminated. There will be no more sinful nature within us, and there will be no temptations from outside. And so we are to be alert. Be ready. And we're to be tireless as well. We're to be tireless. We're to be diligent. Verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace to be spotless and blameless. What's spotless and blameless? That's not perfection. It's not perfection. Spotless and blameless means that we have lives of integrity, that we have lives of morality, of ethics. And when we do fail, we make it right with God or make it right with our fellow man. And we are to live in peace, content, free from trouble. Verse 15 reads this way, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of our Lord is salvation. God is patient. He is patient with us. He's patiently waiting for more people to come to repentance. That's why Christ has not come back yet. It's the same way of saying what we said earlier about Christ's return. And Paul, or Peter says that Paul wrote about these things. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And he says, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some are things hard to understand. When you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, are they hard to understand sometimes? Peter says, I'm right there with you. I don't, I don't understand everything that Paul wrote either. Uh, but Peter had the right attitude about Paul's letters. Peter said that there are some untaught and unstable men who tried to distort Paul's letters. 
Untaught men, men means that they're uneducated. They're not, they're not properly trained to be pastors. They haven't studied the Scriptures. One of the benefits of a good biblical seminary is that it forces those attendees to become students of Scripture. But seminaries are not necessarily a New Testament creation. What's really necessary for the man of God is whether he attends seminary or not to become well-versed in the Scriptures. Paul said there are some people who are not well-versed in the Scriptures. They're, they're untaught. There are others that are unstable. They've never been taught the Scriptures. They're easily misled. They're not firmly rooted in Scripture. And he said these people, if they, become in, if they come in leadership positions in the church, they will become false teachers and they will twist and distort. Literally, Paul says, he uses a, a medical term, they will dislocate Scripture. If you've ever had a dislocated hip, or dislocated uh, shoulder, you know it doesn't work right. It may not work at all. That's what Paul says false teachers seek to do with Scripture. They dislocate Scripture. And Peter says something very encouraging to us, I believe. He says these untaught and unstable men distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures. He's still talking about Paul's letters. He calls Paul's letters Scripture. He says they distort Paul's letters as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Scriptures are those writings that are deemed acceptable by the believing community. They're authoritative for our lives because they are the very Word of God. And these false teachers will be destroyed. Verse 17 Paul tells us to be on guard. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Don't be carried away. Don't be seduced by their doctrines. Remain stable in your understanding of Scripture. In verse 18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he concludes this letter by saying, To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. What is it that is glorified? What is it that you glorify? You glorify really whatever you talk about, whatever you put your focus on. Whatever you tell other people about, that's what you glorify. Whatever you lift up for other people to see, that's what you glorify. And Paul says, let Jesus be the one who's glorified both now and in the day of eternity.